Our biggest quarrels and fights have been and continue to be. Who gets to have a civic voice to be included in that we the people? Today, they expanded the we in we the people. Well, hallelujah. In one state. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something right. It never is. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right, here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Oh, hello there. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon, on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, uh, Burden Square Radio, and Detour Talk, blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today as we continue to fight like hell, as we have for nearly 20 years now, to protect what's left of your democracy. Thank you, and you're welcome. Uh, on Tuesday <laughs> night, after... Hi, Desi Doyen. Hi. After uh, Nancy Pelosi herded the feuding cats from the disparate wings of the House Democratic Caucus into a unanimous Democratic vote with no Republicans to advance Joe Biden's landmark $3.5 trillion Build Back Better agenda... The U.S. House then moved on to the less divisive, somehow, adoption of the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. Again, with all Democrats on board for that vote as well, and none of the Republicans who apparently are not in favor of voting rights advancement, I guess. But we knew that. That, even as those same Republicans around the country adopt discriminatory laws at the state level to block voting rights. Rights which might be restored if Democrats in the U.S. Senate can agree to reform the filibuster to allow passage on a simple majority vote for federal laws that protect democracy itself, like the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act and the For the People Act. As uh, AP reports today, House Democrats have now passed legislation that would strengthen a landmark civil rights-era voting law weakened by the Supreme Court over the past decade a step party leaders tout as progress in their quest to fight back against voting restrictions advanced in Republican-led states. The bill was approved on a 219 to 212 vote with no Republican support. 
Its Tuesday passage was praised by President Joe Biden, who said it would protect a, quote, sacred right and called on the Senate to, to, quote, send this important bill to my desk. The John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, named for the late George Congressman who made the issue a defining one of his career, would restore voting rights protections that have been dismantled by the U.S. Supreme Court. Under the proposal, the Justice Department would once again police new changes to voting laws in states that have racked up a series of violations, drawing them into a mandatory review process known as pre-clearance, pre-clearance of these laws in states with a history of discriminatory voting laws. The practice was first put in place under the Voting Rights Act of 1965. It was struck down by a right-wing majority on the court in 2013 when they ruled the formula for determining which states needed their laws reviewed was outdated and unfairly punitive. The court did, however, say that Congress could come up with a new formula, which is exactly what this bill does. It applies the standards to all 50 states to prevent racially discriminatory laws in any of them under federal law. That, of course, is why Republicans oppose it and why it's so frustrating that, at least as of now, Senators Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema of Arizona are blocking reform to the filibuster, which would be needed to otherwise allow passage of such laws on a simple majority vote. Because they ain't no Republicans who want to protect voting rights. As I've noted, uh, however, I'm a bit more bullish than many in the media on uh, the possibility of the passage of federal voting rights protections. Uh, Joe Manchin has said that he supports the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, for example. So perhaps there is a way to move this and, yes, maybe even the For the People Act, which he says he also supports in slightly modified form. That would that bill would would block partisan gerrymandering and would shed light on dark money in elections and frankly, much more. But at least until the Senate returns from its August recess, when Chuck Schumer says the For the People Act will be the first order of business, hopefully now, along with the recently passed John Lewis Act, it is uh, the fight has been up to this to the states, state courts to advance voting rights. And to that end, well, we've got some very good news for a change this week. Desi, very good news. I like good news. But, you know, be Especially careful. Especially when it comes to voting I rights. I know. You'll be shocked to learn that we've <laughs> got some good news for a change. Uh, state court judges have restored voting rights to an estimated 55,000 North Carolinians who are currently on parole or probation for a felony. GOP state lawmakers who were defending this law, blocking access to the polls for former felons in court, they say they plan to appeal the ruling to a higher court. No surprise there. But if the ruling is upheld on appeal, people convicted of felonies in North Carolina will regain their right to vote once they leave prison. The challenger's uh, lawyer, Stanton Jones, says everyone on felony probation, parole, or post-supervision release can now register and vote starting today, he said on Monday morning when the ruling came down. 
Well, the restoration of voting rights anywhere, frankly, is a victory everywhere. It could be particularly critical in a state like North Carolina, one of the most closely divided in the nation with incredibly small margins in statewide elections in recent years. Most U.S. states already allow people with felony records to regain their voting rights at some point after leaving prison. Some have the same rules North Carolina had until Monday's ruling, requiring people to finish their probation or parole. But a larger number have the rules that the judges have now switched North Carolina to, with people regaining their rights immediately as soon as they leave prison. This would be the biggest expansion of voting rights in North Carolina since the 1960s, according to Daryl Atkinson, co-director of Durham Civil Rights Group, Forward Justice. He was a lawyer for the challengers in this case. He said our biggest quarrels in the state have been over what groups of people have a voice at the ballot box to be included in We the People. Uh, He said on Monday after the ruling, today we enlarged the We in we the people the laws challengers argued that felon disenfranchisement laws were explicitly created to stop black people from voting in the years after the civil war and coincided with a widespread campaign to accuse newly freed black people of felony troubling trends they say which have continued into the current day Progressive progressives everywhere notes that uh, first enacted in the 1870s as part of the Southern backlash against Reconstruction, the North Carolina law was amended in the 1970s to ban any returned citizens from voting until they paid off all of their fines and fees and finished their probation, their parole or their supervised release. The law worked exactly as intended. A recent study found that black North Carolinians make up a whopping 42 percent of those who are disenfranchised by this law, despite uh, uh, comprising just 21 percent of the state's population. That, said Attorney Jones, was, quote, no surprise because that's exactly what the law was designed to do. In fact, the Republican state lawyers defending the law did not even deny its historic intent or its overwhelming racial bias. Instead, they argued that the state does not have to return the right to vote at all if they don't want to. So the fact that any law that restores those rights does not have to do so in an equitable manner. This is actually what the Republicans were arguing here. The Atawana defense. Yeah. In court, well, because, you know, the Constitution says you can't uh, abridge voting rights, but if they don't have the voting rights, you don't have to rush to restore them. That is literally the argument that they are making here. In, in court last week, the lawyer for the GOP lawmakers defending the law uh, said that they agreed with the challengers that the law was indeed rooted in racism when it first passed in the 1870s. But state lawmakers substantially updated the rules in the 1970s to make improvements following the civil rights movement, like, you know, blocking people who haven't paid their fines or fees from being able to vote at all. Thankfully, the judges here were not buying it. If Monday's rule survives on appeal, North Carolina will be the only state in the South to automatically restore voting rights to people after they leave prison. Now, you will recall 
that though Florida voters down in Florida now, uh, they overwhelmingly voted back in 2018 to do exactly this same thing via a constitutional amendment, you know, to immediately restore voting rights uh, to felons after they uh, leave prison. That constitutional amendment put onto the ballot, it passed by a landslide, 65 to 35 percent. It was by almost two and a half million votes. Nonetheless, right after it passed, just after Governor Ron DeSantis won election barely on that very same ballot, it wasn't a landslide in his case. He barely won. Well, he did win. So he called upon the state's GOP legislature to pass a new law that prevented those returning citizens from being able to vote, despite the 65-35 landslide in favor of exactly that. The new law would uh, block them from voting unless they had paid off all existing fines and fees. You know, like the North Carolina law that was passed after the Civil War to keep black people from voting. Florida passed their law to do the same thing in 2019. That, even though, as voting rights advocates have argued, it means that those who can't afford to pay those fines and fees, they don't get to vote. Those who can afford it, they do get to vote. In other words, a modern-day poll tax. Got enough money to vote? That's a poll tax. And it is the exact opposite of what the overwhelmingly popular state constitutional amendment was written and approved to do. Anyway, uh, there was uh, nearly some good news on that front in Florida as well this week, according to progressives everywhere in their uh, latest newsletter. But the Republicans interfered again to stop the restoration of civil rights. A few weeks ago, apparently, Florida's attorney general decided not to appeal a judge's decision to block a ridiculous cap on donations to ballot initiative campaigns that was passed by the Republican legislature and signed into law by Ron DeSantis. In other words, it put a block on how much money could be donated to get an initiative onto the ballot. Republicans don't like having citizens' initiatives on the ballot, so they put a cap on how much money could be spent for that. A judge threw that out, and Florida's attorney general decided not to appeal it. That's good news. And this is all, of course, in response, again, to the passage of Amendment 4, hoping to make it more difficult to get these initiatives on the ballot in the first place. So there were three big ballot initiatives that should have benefited from this uh, recent court ruling in Florida, saying, no, these caps are ridiculous, including an initiative to repeal the GOP's fines and fees law from 2019. Ah. So that can move forward now, except the former state legislature and attorney general candidate Sean Shaw, who was uh, running point on this uh, on these three initiative campaigns, told progressives everywhere last week that the months of uncertainty caused by what is now a voided Republican law to cap the amount of money, etc., uh, that all of those months of delay hobbled the effort for, well, at least enough that it is now impossible to collect the huge number of signatures necessary by the deadline 
to get this onto the 2022 ballot, which the uh, judge in the case uh, did not adjust. That deadline was not adjusted. So instead, they're going to look to pass that ballot initiative in 2024, which means that up to 800,000 former Florida felons will not be able to vote in the next presidential race in Florida. So mission accomplished, even if these laws end up getting overturned. So great news out of North Carolina, at least for now. Not so great news in Florida. But as Progressives Anywhere notes, any good news on voting uh, voting rights these days is a welcome development. It certainly is, especially as passage of new federal protection for voting rights remains held up by, well, two Senate Democrats, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, Kirsten Sinema of Arizona. And it is particularly ironic and maddening for Sinema, given how voting rights in her own state, freedoms that undoubtedly helped her get elected there in the first place, are now under attack again. That story is next. And how voting rights attorneys plan to overcome the activist, not actually conservative, not actually constitutionalist, right-wing Supreme Court as the all-important fight for voting rights continues to continue here in the U.S. And yes, right here on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. You're listening to the Bradcast. We are 100% listener supported. Thanks to listeners like you who drop by bradblog.com slash donate. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. On the final day of this past year's U.S. Supreme Court term, which wrapped up at the beginning of July, the court handed down a disturbing 6-3 to three opinion, striking down challenges to two Arizona voting restrictions adopted and signed by the state's Republican legislature and governor. It was one of the first voting rights challenges to reach the high court under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. The reason it was one of the first challenges to be adjudicated by the Supremes under Section 2 is because in years past, Section 5 of the landmark law was used to prevent discriminatory election laws before they could be enacted. But back in 2013, Chief Justice John Roberts, writing for the court's right-wing majority at the time, found that things had changed so much since 1965 that pre-clearance of new voting laws under Section 5 to make sure they didn't have a racially disparate impact before they went into force, that was no longer necessary. Or... At least the list of jurisdictions subject to pre-clearance of new election laws, uh, jurisdictions with a long history of racial discrimination at the ballot box, that list itself was unconstitutionally out of date. That, even though Section 5 had prevented hundreds of new such discriminatory laws in those jurisdictions in recent years, and there was a clause built into the Voting Rights Act to allow jurisdictions to get off of that list If they that, you know, made them subject to preclearance, if they could demonstrate that they were no longer enacting discriminatory laws. So without a list of jurisdictions protected 
Under Section 5, attorneys now had to turn to Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act to challenge discriminatory laws after they were already enacted and put in place when they then had to demonstrate that such laws either had the intent or the effect of discriminating against minority groups. Lawmakers made that clear in the uh, statute's plain text. Thus, when two Arizona voting restrictions, one that limited who could return early ballots for another person and the other challenging the state's refusal to count ballots that were cast at the wrong precinct, when those restrictions made it to the Supreme Court, Justice Sam Alito, writing for the Republicans' stolen and packed 6-3 to three court majority, decided to write some new rules to adjudicate Section 2 cases. The new rules, as critics pointed out, were largely pulled out of, we'll say, thin air. But they resulted in the GOP justices overturning the lower appeals court, which had found those two Arizona laws, in fact, to be discriminatory. In his opinion, completely ignoring the, by the way, the second and last sentence of the 15th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which specifically, literally directs the quote uh, that, quote, the Congress shall have the power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. That legislation being the Voting Rights Act of 1965, the Congress, not the judiciary. Uh, ignoring that, Alito's majority opinion uh, created some five guideposts for adjudicating such challenges to voting rights to voting restrictions under Section Two. Among Alito's so-called guideposts, as TPM's Matt Shuham summarized at the time, at the beginning of July this year. The, quote, size of the burden on voters, the disparity of a rule's impact on minority voters, whether there are other non-burdensome opportunities to cast a ballot available to voters, the strength of the state's interests in things such as, quote, preventing election fraud, and even the degree to which the rule departs from uh, what was, quote, standard practice back in, wait for it, 1982, when the Voting Rights Act was last amended for some reason. The rather arbitrary, almost random new so-called guideposts were roundly excoriated by voting rights experts. And in the case of Brnovich v. DNC, in which they were invented, uh, those resulted in those two discriminatory laws being allowed for use in Arizona anyway. And yes, even Alito admitted that those new laws might prevent some minority voters from participating in elections, but not that many. So no worries. Seriously, that's what his opinion actually says. After the appellate court had previously determined that the measures did disproportionately affect black, Hispanic and Native American voters in violation of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, Alito Writing for the majority uh, said that the state's interest in the integrity of elections justified those measures anyway, and that those minority voters faced only, quote, modest burdens at most. The court rejected the idea that showing a state law disproportionately affected minority voters is on its own enough to prove a violation of Section 2. 
In a scathing dissent, Justice Elena Kagan wrote that the court was weakening the federal voting rights law for the second time in eight years. Quote, what is tragic here, she wrote, is that the court has yet again rewritten in order to weaken a statute that stands as a monument to America's greatness and protects against its basest impulses. What is tragic, she said, is that the court has damaged a statute designed to bring about the end of discrimination in voting. That was Kagan railing in her dissent, joined by Justices Breyer and Sotomayor. Among the court's uh, among the court experts that we discussed this disturbing yet landmark ruling with at the time was Robert Brandon, the longtime public interest attorney at the Fair Elections Center. He described the opinion as essentially saying, quote, discrimination is OK as long as it's not a whole lot. He also noted that the court's activist ruling essentially ignoring the literal text of the Constitution mandating that the Congress shall have the power to enforce the 15th Amendment's ban on the abridgment of voting rights on account of race, that that was a, quote, real departure from the claims of so-called originalism or textualism, the plain text reading of the Constitution, which so-called conservatives pretend to believe in. In fact, when we later spoke with Supreme Court reporter Mark Joseph Stern about the Brnovich case, he was irate, noting that the framers of the 15th and other Reconstruction-era amendments specifically tasked Congress with overseeing and enforcing those amendments because the courts could not be trusted to do so. Well, by the summer of 2021 now, we may now see why. Nonetheless, in the meantime, the work of voting rights attorneys moves ahead, even in Arizona, even as Democrats in Congress attempt to revise the Voting Rights Act to fix what the court broke on Section 5 back in 2013 and on Section 2 earlier this summer. Last week, several minority voting rights groups filed suit in U.S. District Court for the Dis uh, District of Arizona, seeking to block what they describe as, quote, new voter suppression laws enacted by the Arizona legislature. The lawsuit challenges two recently enacted laws designed to suppress the votes of Arizonans of color and other marginalized Arizonans. They argue one law ends Arizona's permanent early voting list and removes voters from the early voting list when they do not vote in two consecutive election cycles and fail to respond to a notice. And the other new restriction requires voters who submit a mail-in ballot missing a required signature to fix the issue by 7 p.m. on Election Day, despite allowing ballots with so-called mismatched signatures to be cured up to five days after Election Day. Well, that does not seem to make sense. Hopefully my guests can explain it to me momentarily. The voter purge law and the cure period law violate the right of all Arizonans to vote, the complaint alleges. Neither law responds to any genuine shortcoming in Arizona's election system or furthers any valid state interest, it says. The plaintiffs, which include Mi Familia Vota, Arizona Coalition for Change, Living United for Change in Arizona, and Shispa Arizona, also allege, quote, the laws will have a severe and disproportionate impact on voters of color in Arizona, especially Native American, Latino, and black voters. Well, sure, maybe, 
But does it discriminate enough to meet Alito's made-up-from-whole-cloth test? It is no coincidence, the plaintiffs go on to argue, that the Arizona legislature enacted these changes only after an election in which one, for the first time in recent memory, the presidential candidate preferred by Arizona voters of color actually won. And two, voters of color increasingly used early voting, the target of the new laws, to help elect their candidate of choice. The plaintiffs argue that these two laws violate the 1st, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the U.S. Constitution and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. They're asking the court to block the state's election officials from enforcing the laws and ensure ongoing compliance. That even, even though the court just seemingly gutted the use of the Voting Rights Act, for such cases. So how can attorneys successfully argue against discriminatory voting laws after the Brnovich decision, at least in lieu of new federal voting rights legislation from Congress to help correct the Supreme Court's gutting of the act, even as states controlled by Republicans right now continue to pass brand new voting restrictions targeting Democratic-leaning voters at the state level, particularly in swing states like Arizona and Georgia and Florida and Texas. I don't know how they'll do it, but maybe my guest does. Courtney Hostetler, senior counsel at Free Speech for People, which is representing the voting rights plaintiffs in Arizona, joins us next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Courtney Hostetler serves as senior counsel at Free Speech for People, which is representing several minority group plaintiffs in a new federal case in Arizona, challenging two new restrictions on voting in the state, one which kills the state's popular permanent early voting list and another which mandates that voters who forget to sign their ballots must come into the county headquarters to do so before 7 p.m. on election night even though mail-in ballots judged to have so-called mismatched signatures, well, voters of those are allowed to come in and cure them up to five days after Election Day. Both laws, say the plaintiff in their recently filed federal suit, disproportionately impact minority voters. But do they impact them enough to overcome Supreme Court Justice Sam Alito's new so-called guideposts for adjudicating discrimination under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Following his opinion in, a, in an offensive 6-3 ruling just last month that legislates new law from the bench that will make it much harder to challenge discriminatory voting laws under the Voting Rights Act, despite the 15th Amendment's explicit, literal mandate that it is up to Congress, not the courts, to enforce the ban on the abridgment of minority voting rights. Free Speech for People is one of our favorite nonpartisan, nonprofit organizations fighting for voting rights and election integrity, among other things, including legal advocacy and public education 
to challenge the influence of money in politics and the abuse of government power. Courtney Hostetler, welcome back to the broadcast. Thank you so much for having me. So I, I want to discuss the specifics of your new filing in Arizona and how it can possibly be won, uh, given the recent, I would argue, appalling ruling from uh, from SCOTUS in the Brnovich case. But, uh, Courtney, there's a shorthand uh, saying, I'm sure you know on the Internet, I-A-N-A-L. I am not a lawyer, but... I thought it was important to try to explain the legal atmosphere in which your 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 challenge to Arizona's latest restriction, voting restrictions, is now being filed. And since I A N A L, but you are, I wanted to make sure that my characterization there, which you heard in the previous segment, is meant for you know mere mortals, not for lawyers, that it was generally accurate. Was it? Did I egregiously mischaracterize anything as 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 you file this suit? No, I think you got everything right. I think including the fact that it's an appalling decision uh, that certainly. Uh, steps in, you know, puts courts in the place where the legislature not only should be, but in fact has been, because they not only passed the Voting Rights Act, but in 1982 they passed um, an amendment to that act, Mm -hmm. actually in order to correct courts overstepping uh, their Mm -hmm. place and misunderstanding what the, the impetus of the Voting Rights Act was. So, you know, we've been here before, and it's unfortunate that the courts have, have again stepped in to narrow a law that was intentionally written to broadly apply to end just, you know, decades, centuries mm-hmm. of, of many ways of suppressing the vote in this country, sometimes very overtly. And then as, you know, people interested in suppressing the vote learn the game, uh, less, you know, more covertly, mm-hmm. right? They learn the code. One of those codes being, well, let's just say it's fraud. And then we can pretend this is not actually about unconstitutionally burdening and suppressing the uh, black and Latino and Native American mm-hmm. votes in this country. And, and they're, right. they're not even saying it's fraud. They're saying it's to prevent fraud, right? right? right. We, we Just in right. case we right. have fraud, right. this will stop it from happening. Right. Without any proof that is that without any proof either mm-hmm. that it is an actual risk or that these laws have anything to do with it, right? Because they don't. You know, you asked, how do we make sense of this? Mm-hmm. And the way that we make sense of it is to, to cut through and recognize it for what it is. These are voter suppression laws. These are laws that are, that, that are intended to suppress the vote. And that's what they're going to have the purpose of doing. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you were spot on in your analysis of, of Brnovich. What I would point out is that there's a... You know, your analysis was of something called the disparate impact Mm -hmm. claims. And so in those claims, the plaintiff doesn't have to show that the legislature intended Mm -hmm. it to be discriminatory. They need to show that it was, in fact, Mm -hmm. discriminatory, that it did, in fact, burden voters of color. Whether they meant to do it or not, it doesn't matter. It just, that was the result. Yeah. Exactly. And and this was, again, going back to the purpose of the Voting Rights Act. This was an important part of the Voting Rights Act because, you know, legislatures, as soon as you have a, a disparate purpose, claim, mm-hmm. legislatures, legislators learn to keep their mouth shut. If they want to suppress the vote, they don't say it out loud, or at least they don't say it in a place where it's going to be recorded. Mm-hmm. And so what, what a disparate impact claim does is allow us to cut through what the purpose is and look at what the outcome is. So, uh, and, and that is really critical, and what the courts did is really cut that away. 
that being said, you can still bring disparate purpose claims, and in fact, we have brought one in this Arizona case. Mm-hmm. Well, the other thing. Be, well, okay, no, no, go ahead. I was because I want to ask you actually about the specifics of your case, and then I, I do want to get into how you're going to overcome this, you know, r- radical. What I see as radical, as activist, as not conservative, as a not plain text reading <laughs> of either the law or the Constitution uh, in, in the Brnovich case. So let's establish first. Tell me about the two specific Arizona voting restrictions that you are challenging and why you believe that they will have a disparate, a disparate impact against voters of color uh, in, in Arizona. Sure, and I apologize if I am repetitive because you, you already did such a great job of, of synthesizing what these laws are, but I'll dig into them a little bit more. The first is uh, Senate Bill 1485, mm-hmm. which is the voter purge law. So Arizona, for a number of years, has really prioritized voting by mail as the method by which they really want people to be voting. And one of the ways that they do this is they have a permanent early voting list. Mm -hmm. And if you're on this list, if you as a voter opt to be on this list, then you're just mailed your ballot every election, right? Mm -hmm. Local elections, midterm elections, the presidential election, doesn't matter. Uh, When there's a school board election, right? Mm -hmm. When there's there's an election, they mail you your ballot. You don't have to ask for it. It comes, and then you can can, um, vote by mail, Mm -hmm. right? You sign it, and you you get it um, dropped off or mailed uh, within the, you know, the the necessary time frame, and that's how many people choose to vote. And I understand it's very popular in Arizona. Some 80% of voters in the state, I believe, uh, vote by mail. I don't know how many of them permanently do so, but a whole bunch of folks are permanently on that early voting list and and get those uh, ballots in the mail every election. Right. And it's extremely popular, and it does make voting accessible to many people uh, for whom getting to vote in person might be much more challenging. People who work long mm-hmm. hours, people who don't have the ability to get uh, to a polling place on election day, people who may not, you know, work or live near their polling places. You know, if you're if you're mm-hmm. working an hour away and you have a 20 minute lunch break, you're probably not going to get to the polls, right? So this really opens up the possibility that people are able to vote. Mm-hmm. What this law does is say, well. If you're on this list, which is supposed to be permanent, right? Mm-hmm. It's right in the name, permanent early voting <laughs> right. list. Right. Uh, if you don't vote in two consecutive election cycles, you're out. We're going to take you off the list. And, you know, two election cycles is, is not that many, right? Mm-hmm. There's local elections. Yeah. Uh, there's many elections that happen. And, look, I think it would be great if we lived in a world where everybody was able to vote in every single election. But that's not, you know, that's not the case. People, and we live in a country where we have made the decision that people can choose when to vote and which elections to vote into, mm-hmm. except apparently now in Arizona, because if you decide to skip an election, uh, if you decide to skip two elections for whatever reason, um, you're off this list. Which is, and you, you know, might not realize I, it. I, I, I got to say, it's it kind of outrageous because I have fought for years for the right, even though I think it's a mistake, I have fought for the right for people to not vote. You know, if they don't wish to vote, that in one sense is a vote itself. So if people choose to not vote for whatever reason, it doesn't seem to me they should be penalized for it. And yet this law, uh, if they don't vote, if they don't respond then to a, a, a notice, they don't see they don't get the notice, they don't notice it, they think it's junk mail or whatever, they'll be removed. Is there a way to get back on the permanent early voting list or is there no more permanent early voting list under this law? There is a way to get back on it, but that presupposes that you know you were removed in the first place. Uh I think you raised a really good point about 
the notice. It would, for example, absolutely harm people for whom English is not a first language. Mm -hmm. And if they're not looking for this notice, they don't realize they need to get something translated, Mm -hmm. it can get right past them. Um, And like you said, it could look like junk mail, doesn't, I mean, you're not expecting if you get, and there's no, there's no information in the law about, you know, what kind of notice is required, how mm-hmm. much notice, second, nothing like that. Just some notice is given, maybe. And, and, yeah, and, and, and it's going to be very easy to miss. I mean, if you're not, you, you know, a, look, six weeks before the election, you're looking for your ballot. Right. In March, are you looking for information <laughs> right. about the fact that you've now been kicked off what you thought was a permanent early voting list? Right. Maybe not. And then what happens is by the time, you know, you're, it, the next election rolls around, you're six weeks out from the election, the ballot doesn't come, the ballot, you know, you figure, okay, well, we know mail is is un, is ridiculously slow yep. at election time. Um so maybe you think there's been a delay. By the time you realize your ballot isn't coming, mm-hmm. it's too late to request one, and it's too late to get on the permanent early voting list. And right? that's, so that's one it, of the uh, the rule the, the the restrictions that you're challenging. The other, I had really uh, I have some trouble understanding this one. So voters who submit a mail-in ballot but they don't sign it, I guess. They have to fix that issue if, I guess, they're told about it by 7 p.m. on Election Day. And and then you say, despite allowing ballots with mismatched signatures to be cured up to five days after Election Day. Explain that one to me, Courtney. Sure. And I would say, you know, alleged mismatched signatures. I think we probably spoken on your mm-hmm. uh, on your show before about uh, you know the troubling habit of, of who gets kicked off you know who, mm-hmm. who's alleged to have a mismatch mismatch signature and who's not but yes basically if you know in Arizona you have to sign your ballot if you provide a signature and somebody decides that it doesn't match um, you at least have five days after the election to cure that alleged mismatch whether mm-hmm. or not it actually is one. If you don't sign it, if you don't realize you're supposed to sign it, if you forget to sign it, then you only have up until Election Day itself to get it signed. So R- rather than receive- five days after right. the election when, they, when you also right. could come in and sign it. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. And I would also say, you know, you can't just walk, if, if you are notified in time, which you might not be, I mean, if your election offices are really busy, if they don't prioritize, if there may be not willing to prioritize providing notice to mm-hmm. voters. You know, there, if, if you voted, but you got it dropped off the day before the election, you know, or the day of, you won't get that notice. And so your, your chance is gone. And so how do those two laws, which obviously seem to be seem to me to be a problem, frankly, for for everyone, for any voters. But how do they specifically, uh, since you're bringing a claim under the Voting Rights Act, how how do they specifically end up impacting minority voters? So it impacts minority voters in a couple different ways. So looking at the law we just spoke about, you can't just go down to your local voting Precinct, like you can't go down to where you would cast a ballot. You mm-hmm. need to go to the county election office. Right. And where those county election offices are located could very well affect your ability to get there. So, for example, as we mentioned, if you get a 20-minute lunch break, you're not getting there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, if you get a, tw- you know, and you might even, let's say you only work or live a few miles away, right? Mm-hmm. Let's say you're in a city. If you're in a city that doesn't offer good transport, public transportation mm-hmm. to these election offices, 
then you're not getting there and back in 20 minutes, right? You're not getting there, back, there and back in an hour. In fact, we did some research and saw that if you look in the distance it takes to get to some neighborhoods and major cities in Arizona that have large minority voter populations, mm-hmm. what it takes for them to go by public transportation, by bus, to the election office where they would be able to cure their ballot, two hours, yeah. one way, using yeah. public transportation. Good luck. I mean, we're, you know, we're in the city limits, but I think people who don't rely on public transportation don't necessarily realize what it takes to get from point A to point B if you rely on public transportation. Mm-hmm. I think the people who passed the law knew exactly what it takes. Mm. And I think there's, you know, this is definitely part of the calculus here. This place is an enormous burden. And, you know, it goes back to, you know, we can't divorce this from the history of voting suppression in Arizona. We you know, we talk about this a lot in our complaint, but, his, you know, Arizona has an unfortunate and long history of voter suppression of Latino, Black, Native American voters, and often suppression tactics will go hand in hand with other tactics of suppression in housing, in education, in working mm-hmm. uh, that we see over and over and over again. So, for example, Black and Latino voters are more likely to live in neighborhoods that don't have great access to these government offices where they have to go and correct their ballots. Mm -hmm. Um, They are more likely, again, due to a history of oppression in the state, they're more likely to, uh, say, be working long hours, to be working jobs that don't give them sufficient time off to get to and from these offices. You know, there's a lot of ways in which uh, you have a a history of of discrimination that ties into these supposed, and I'm putting this in enormous air quotes, these <laughs> yes. supposed neutral voting laws. And, and this would have been, uh, because Arizona, I believe, I don't know if it was the whole state or if it was just certain counties, but you know, used to be covered. These laws, I believe, would have been stopped before they could go into place under Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act until that was gutted in 2013. But now, uh, Courtney, I mean, even when last we spoke, I think uh, we spoke earlier in April, uh, we hadn't yet had this Brnovich decision affecting Section 2 cases, you know, and I think at the time we talked about a whole bunch of cases around the country that you guys were, were challenging and trying to prevent. Now we're in a whole new world. We're in, you know, Alito's guidepost era. And, you know, even if your charges are accurate here and you're able to demonstrate the things that you're describing, do these claims meet these new guideposts invented out of thin air by uh, by Justice Alito in the Brnovich decision just a month or two ago? So one thing I do want to clarify, we actually are bringing our claims under we have, we're bringing constitutional claims and we're bringing disparate purpose claim. Mm -hmm. So our arguments are, one, that the legislature knew exactly what it was doing, and it Mm -hmm. passed this law with the intention of being discriminatory. And two, we're looking to the First and Fourteenth Amendment and showing uh, that these laws will impermissibly and unconstitutionally burden voters. We actually aren't raising a claim under the disparate impact portion of Mm -hmm. Section 2. And is that because of his decision, or you just feel that this is not the appropriate way to, to bring these particular cases? You know, it, it's certainly, we are very aware of Brnovich. Uh, mm-hmm. In our case, the good thing is we, 
we have constitutional claims. Constitutional claims have been available to voters to protect their rights. And often it makes sense to look first to uh, the protections given by the Constitution. Mm-hmm. So in this case, you know, our focus has been on the fact that these these laws very clearly violate the Constitution, um, and these are strong claims that we are we are pursuing. And is that essentially, I know you deal with the, not just the case in Arizona, but a lot of these uh, election uh, law suits around the case, is that now what attorneys are going to have to sort of do to work around Brnovich, find other, either other sections, uh, other provisions of the Voting Rights Act, or make uh, strictly constitutional claims that this undermines, you know, whether it's the the First Amendment, the 14th, the 15th. Uh, Is that what we're going to have to now see done in a post-Brnovich world at this point? You know, it's hard to say what other litigators are going to choose to do, in part because different litigators are going to have, and their clients are going to have different interests and different focus areas. Mm So, you know, I I think we're going to see different litigators take different approaches. It, it, It would not surprise me if we see many people saying, look, let's focus on our constitutional claims. Often constitutional claims are brought as well as Voting Rights Act claims, it's possible now that people are going to be putting more of an emphasis on their constitutional claims mm-hmm. as they move forward against this enormous spate of voter suppression laws that are being considered around the country. So I think that's what litigators are going to do. Mm-hmm. I think in terms of what everybody else should do, um, <laughs> I think there's a real opportunity to be talking to our legislators, both at the local and state level and at the federal level, and saying this can't stand, right? You, there, frankly, it is, it is appalling that this decision happened. It is also appalling that we live in an era in 2021 where voter suppression is thriving. Yeah. And it really does fall on voters, including those of us who might say, well, this isn't really, you know, the burden's not going to affect me. You know, the burden does affect us because it affects our democracy. Yeah. And we need to be fighting for the people who are burdened and who don't have the same access to their government officials as we do, potentially in part because those same government officials know that they've made it harder for these constituents to vote, yeah. right? So if we're going to protect both our fellow voters and also the democracy itself, we need to be calling our legislators and say, you can't pass these. You can't vote in favor of these. Don't be somebody who is so nakedly and blatantly passing laws that are intended to burden some voters over others, and, those, and specifically voters of color. Those are the, and, the state at, laws that are being passed. At the right. federal level, and as an attorney on the on the ground, a litigator, uh, Courtney Hostetler, you know, fighting these fights with the available tools, whether it's the Constitution and whatever is left of the Voting Rights Act, how important is it for you and for your work to see federal legislation passed to shore up uh, those efforts in court, Courtney? I think it will be, you know, we have a strong case and strong constitutional claims, but it is really you know, again, I think detrimental to our democracy that we've, we are in a position where courts have eroded what was intended to be a very broad and powerful tool to fight against vote and election discrimination, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. what the Voting Rights Act is. And so what's really important is making it clear, again, that the health of our democracy and the fairness of our democracy um, is important to us as, as 
constituents and as legislators. And so getting that back on the table will certainly put another tool in our toolbox and a very important tool, but it's also a really powerful statement that we as a country have seen the erosion that our courts have been willing to do to a law that was not intended to be eroded. Right. There was no mm-hmm. time limit written into this law. The courts arbitrarily added one in 2012. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there is a reason here to, to pass a law to, again, to show the courts that they don't have the authority to open the doors to voter suppression. Let me and that's, if they do, it's certainly not a door we should be walking into at the local level, and we should be telling our legislators that. But also, we need to slam that door shut, and if the courts aren't willing to keep the door closed, then our federal government needs to be doing that, and we need to be telling them that that's what they should be doing. I, and I've got about two minutes left here, Courtney, so I want to unfairly ask you two complicated questions, but we're going right. to have to do it very quickly. Okay. Uh, you know, and, and I, I, I got to ask, because seemingly I'm the only one uh, who seems to be uh, raising this point over and over again. What am I not understanding about the clear, plain text meaning of the uh, second and last sentence of the 15th Amendment that says the Congress, not the judiciary, but the Congress shall have the power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation? And why is that point seemingly never challenged at the high court when, you know, th- th- they try to challenge when the court tries to challenge what Congress expressly ordered in its legislation to enforce the amendment. You know, I, you've, in fact, you've answered this question on this call, and I think one of the reasons it sounds complicated is because we, we want our court decisions to be rational, and so we look for ways to make them make sense. I think it's important to acknowledge that for, unfortunately, a number of leaders in this country, voter suppression is a goal they're seeking. And so if that's the rationale, then a lot of this starts to fall into place. Mm. You know, voter suppression is not an unfortunate byproduct of a bad decision. It is the purposeful goal, and the only way to get there is to write decisions that, for example, pretend those last parts of the 15th Amendment aren't there. They don't exist. I know I'm a constitutional <laughs> textualist. I believe in the plain meaning, but as long as I don't notice those words, I guess that's fine. And uh, lastly, because uh, this is sort of related, you know, the, uh, do you have any confidence if by, you know, some miracle, and I, I still frankly believe there may be such a miracle, if the Senate Democrats can reform the filibuster to allow passage of either the For the People Act or the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, which was just adopted in the House on Tuesday, If they can change the filibuster to allow that to pass with 50 Democratic votes, the same way Republicans reform the filibuster to allow them to seat Supreme Court justices for life on the highest court in the land. If that can happen and either or both of those two bills passed, how confident are you at this point that this stolen and packed six to three right wing court won't simply knock those laws down just as they've gutted the successful longstanding Voting Rights Act? Two points. One is they may try to, but one thing to look at is, again, this is not the first time that the Supreme Court has struck down important laws that protect, or, you know, not struck down, let's say tried to reshape mm-hmm. laws intended to protect people's rights. and Rewrite. Legislate from the bench. Yes. Right. And the, legislate, the legislature has in the past come back and said, absolutely not. They've done it with the Voting Rights Act, but they've done it in other areas, too, including employment law, 
housing, like this is not the first time this has happened. And so, you know, I think we can focus on the fact that if they are so specifically kind of pushed back, that they would respect that. But the other thing to keep in mind is who we vote for really matters. Are, you know, let's not ignore the midterms. Let's not ignore these down ballots, mm-hmm. uh, these down ballot elections that get our senators into place because these are the people who can make sure that we are seating, um, you know, not partisan judges, right? We're not, we're not allowing legislators to control the Senate and put judges in place who don't have an interest in the plain meaning of the law, uh, the plain meaning of the Constitution, mm-hmm. um, where we are holding our senators accountable for the judges they seat, and we are putting in new, you know, we are voting in new senators uh, where senators are not standing up for their responsibilities, and we're choosing senators who are going to be thoughtful and, and you know, take seriously the role of, of judges. Good and confirming good. Judges. Yeah, good advice. And this is ongoing. I yes. will say this is not going to be a short process. This is going to be a lesson we need to be thinking about again and again and again and again. Yes. It's not who, going to reform overnight. Who we vote for is clearly very, very important, which is why they're working so hard to keep you from being able to vote right. at all. So all we have to do is remember to vote and remember to try to overcome all of these obstacles come hell or high water, and we seem to be having a lot of both of late. Courtney Hostetler is Senior Counsel at Free Speech for People, bringing this, uh, well, this important lawsuit in, well, in the post-Burnovich era when uh, all bets are off as far as uh, challenges to voting rights and voting restrictions. But the fight continues. Uh, People can find your work and this lawsuit at freespeechforpeople.org. I uh, also do suggest that you follow them on Twitter. They are FSFP on Twitter. That's Free Speech for People. As I said, they were one of my favorite uh, groups out there fighting this fight, and I do hope you'll support them. Courtney, always great speaking with you. Thank you so much for having me. It was great speaking with you. And you. Thanks, Courtney. Okay, we got to get out. Yes. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doy, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other or just want to hear it again, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That is made possible by those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to support our work. Drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. I'll see you there until we see you here next time. Hopefully tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs>